Americans used to refer to a certain kind of person as a God-fearing man. But I don't hear us using that kind of language very often anymore. Back when the term was more commonly used, it indicated the person who lived a godly life, someone whose profession of Christianity was authenticated by a life lived in obedience to God. An honest man, a hardworking man, a faithful man, a church-going man, was a God-fearing man. And notice these characteristics are related to fearing God, someone who had a healthy level of reverential fear. Maybe we don't use this term so much today because we have decided that people should not fear God, that because he is a loving God, it is now inappropriate to teach people to fear him. Today, we seem to believe that God is a much kinder gentler God than our forefathers imagined, and we are on a mission to liberate people from medieval notions such as fearing God. But what does the Bible, God's self-revelation to man, say about this? And let us look carefully at our text today in 1 Peter 1.17. And it says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Who should fear God? Some common answers to that question might include everyone should fear God because he has both power and authority over all men. But another answer might be unbelievers are the ones who should fear God because they are the ones who face a future judgment. And some might even go so far as to say Christians should never fear God because they have no reason to fear. But notice again our text in 1 Peter 1.17. And may I summarize Peter's answer in this text, which is in short that Christians should fear God. Not Christians alone, but Christians as well as unbelievers And yes, Christians especially, more than unbelievers, because they know what unbelievers do not know or will not admit to themselves. To look at Peter's answer to that question a little more precisely, he identifies those who fear God as those who call upon God as Father. Those who have a relationship with God as Father, which is expressed in prayer. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Let me give you the rendering of a couple of other versions. The New American Standard says, And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. The ESV says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And finally, the NIV says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And so Peter's answer is, those who call upon God as father are to fear God. 
if upon the Father you call. For in the Greek, the word Father comes before the word call and therefore receives the emphasis. And that means if you have a relationship with God as Father, what we call a filial relationship. In other words, if you are a child of God. Peter addressed these same readers as obedient children in verse 14. They are children in verse 14 because they call upon God as their father in our text today, verse 17. As we well know, not everyone can call upon God as father, at least not properly. Jesus said in John 8:44 to the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he goes on. Not everyone can properly call upon God as Father. But Jesus addressed God as his heavenly Father repeatedly. As, for example, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. And I could cite dozens of similar examples in the prayers of our Lord. And as we know, Jesus also taught his children, his disciples, to address God as Father. As, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers, teaches Christians to call God Father. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, Romans 8.15, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy, that is, Father. And it is noteworthy that in all of Paul's epistles, the word Father is used in his opening greetings. And the same is true in Peter's opening words in 1 Peter 1-2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. There's great emphasis in the Word of God upon the filial relationship of Christians to God. The fact that God is to be our Father. We are to think of Him as Father. We are to know Him as Father. We are to address Him as our Father. It is an important truth. It is a comforting truth. Christians belong to the family of God. Christians have a Father a heavenly father. And so if you are related to God as father, then this text applies to you. And furthermore, if you are in the habit of prayer, then this text applies to you. If you call on the father, if you call on, that is invoke the name of the father in prayer, call upon the father for help, Appeal to the Father for aid. If you do that, then this text applies for you. And this verb is in the present tense, which would indicate regular, habitual calling upon God for aid. If you are in the habit of calling out to God for aid, then you need to learn to fear God, is what Peter is saying. 
And every Christian calls upon God for aid. In fact, the more we grow close to God, the more we realize our need, and the more often, more frequently, more urgently, more actively we call out to Him for help. It's not just a matter of calling out to Him for help when we have great crises like sickness or bereavement or financial reversal, but as we feel our failure and sin and weakness and our God-given desires are not being carried out in our life, we find ourselves calling out to God for help again and again and again. Now, if that is you, if you call upon God, your Father, for help, then you need to listen to the rest of our text in 1 Peter 1.17. Praying to God is actually the mark of a true Christian. Notice how Paul opens his Corinthian epistle, the first one. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. This epistle is written to the saints at Corinth, yea, it is written to everyone everywhere who with us calls upon God the Father in prayer. In other words, it's written to all Christians. Or 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We're in this together. We're pilgrims together. We need to help and encourage one another. And all who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart, a heart made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, all such people are endeavoring together to live a life that is pleasing unto the Lord. And so praying to God is a mark of salvation. And if these things apply to you, if you have been taught by the Holy Spirit to consider God your Heavenly Father, and if you are in the habit of calling out to God in prayer then this is what applies to you. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. If these apply to you, then you need to be more reverential in your fear toward God. If these apply to you, or if these apply to you as as they do, Peter assumes that they do, Since these apply to you is the way it's translated in one of the translations. But it does cause us to stop and ask the question, do these marks apply to you? Do you really regard God as your heavenly father? Do you find yourself regularly, habitually, urgently calling out to him in prayer? Then if so, this applies to you. If not, then no matter what kind of a profession you have made, you need to be born again. You need to be made a child of God by the work of God's Holy Spirit. You need to go to God and acknowledge your need and cast yourself upon his mercy. Who should fear God? But number two, why should Christians fear God? Why should Christians fear God? 
And the answer to that is threefold. Number one, because our Heavenly Father is also our judge. Number two, because our Heavenly Father is an impartial judge. And number three, because our Heavenly Father is a discerning judge. Why should Christians fear God? Because our Heavenly Father is also our judge. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Because our Heavenly Father is also our judge. It is not that He is a Heavenly Father and also a judge in some kind of indefinite way. It is certainly not that He is the Heavenly Father of believers and the judge only of unbelievers. That's not what our text tells us. But He is the Heavenly Father and the judge of Christians. We usually have difficulty maintaining two truths that seem to be competing truths. We struggle with things like that, don't we? The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. Anything that seems to be a competing truth and and seems to set up any contradictions or difficulties in our mind, we have difficulty holding on to both strands of truth. And so we will generally go to one truth or the other and neglect the opposite side. And that's also true here. We find it difficult sometimes to think at the same time of God as our Heavenly Father and also as our judge. God is our Heavenly Father. That evokes feelings of warmth, of friendliness, of privilege, as well it should. That's what that means. If you are a child of God, God is your Heavenly Father. God does love you with a special love. God does have a special care for you, a special concern for you. There is a new relationship there. There's a friendly relationship between you and God whereas unbelievers have a relationship of enmity between them and God. There are wonderful privileges enjoyed by those who belong to God as His children that do not belong to others. Yes, the term Father should evoke feelings of warmth and friendliness and privilege and and love. The term Judge, on the other hand, seems to evoke in our minds that which is cold and unfriendly, And without privilege. And indeed, that is true too, in some sense. These are competing truths, and we need to try to hold both strands of these competing truths together, because that's exactly what Peter does for us in our text today. God as Father, God as Judge, both are true for believers. Peter is telling us that our knowledge of God as Father must not dispel our dread of Him as judge. He's telling us, do not let familiarity diminish reverential awe. Yes, God is your Father. And that's wonderful. And please understand and enjoy and enter into all the privileges of that. But don't presume and don't Let your familiarity with the God of the universe diminish the reverential awe that we are to have toward this God, the high and almighty and holy one. So why should Christians fear God? Number one, because our heavenly father is also our judge. Number two, because our heavenly father is an impartial judge. And if you call on the father who without partiality 
judges according to each one's work. Without partiality, judges according to each one's work. God judges impartially, literally without receiving face. What does that mean? That means God has no favorites when he judges. Whether those he, are, he is judging are his children or not. Wayne Grudem put it this way. Don't forget your father is also the judge of the universe who shows no favoritism to anyone, friend or children. And another commentator said the special privilege of calling God our father does not excuse the believer from being judged by God. Because each person will be judged according to the same standard. That's what Peter is telling us. If you call on the Father who judges, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Each one. Each and every one. No one excluded from this judging. Each one. One by one by one. Individually God, the judge of the universe, the righteous, holy judge of the universe, is going to judge every one of the people that he has made, whether they are his children or not. And he's going to judge us impartially. And thirdly, our Heavenly Father is a discerning judge. That very word, judge, in the verb form. Your Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. That word means to separate or distinguish, then evaluate and decide. The heavenly judge discerns the true nature of what he is judging. He's the only judge who always can. Earthly judges do their best. They try to gather all the information they can, all the testimony they can, all the evidence they can, and then render the best decision they can, but of course they miss it a lot of times because it's impossible for them to know everything. But this judge is omniscient. He knows everything. And therefore this judge is able to judge thoroughly, completely, accurately every time, and he does. He will. He is righteous in all that he does. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course he will. And he will judge aright. You can be sure of that. And he's going to judge our works, our deeds, who judges according to each one's works. The deeds, the words, the things we have done and said throughout our sojourn here upon earth. Now, there is a difference in the judgment between the believer and the unbeliever. And I will state that now in case you think I'm overlooking something. The unbeliever will be judged by God according to his works. That's what constitutes the judgment. And the standard is how our conduct measures up to God's requirement, our standard. And so the unbeliever will be judged according to his works. And when his sinful works are exposed and he has no propitiation to appease the wrath of a holy God, <coughs> then the unbeliever must be condemned. The believer will also be judged according to his sinful works. He, however, has Christ the propitiation, the one who has fully satisfied the righteous standard of a holy God. And therefore, though he is guilty, just as guilty as the unbeliever of sin before God, he will not be condemned. He will be 
declared justified before God. He has already been justified at the judgment bar of God when he believed in Jesus Christ. And in that day, his justification will be publicly and eternally declared. That's a great comfort and that's a wonderful truth. (coughs) But here's the point. As far as the actual judging process is concerned, there really is no difference between the believer and the unbeliever. And God's judgment upon sin is just as 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 uh, serious for the believer as it is for the unbeliever. The displeasure of God in exposing and condemning our sinful works is a fearful thought. And it ought to be. Edmund Hebert said the Christian's filial relations will not remove him from God's judgment of whatever is contrary to God's holiness. The Christian's filial relations will not remove him from God's judgment of whatever is contrary to God's holiness. And Job's said, the sinful life that God abhors will be no less abhorred if it is lived by one who professes to be a Christian. The sinful life that God abhors will be no less abhorred if it is lived by one who professes to be a Christian. Does the Bible indeed teach a judgment for the child of God? It does, over and over again. And now let me give you a few texts that teach this truth. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15 For no foundation can anyone lay than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, the day of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Yes, there is salvation at the end of this judgment for those who are the children of God. But this judgment is not a Sunday school picnic. It's a fearful time. Second Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's written to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Hebrews 12.25 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, the things which cannot be shaken, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, For our God is a consuming fire. That's spoken to Christians. 
Serve God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Paul addressing masters of slaves in Ephesians 6, 9 said, And you masters, do the same things to them, that is, be just and equitable and kind, giving up threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. In other words, you be careful how you treat your slaves, remembering that you are going to be judged by God in heaven. And your judgment before God in heaven is going to depend in part in how you have treated those who are under you. Judgment to come for the children of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. There's a time coming when Christians' hidden things are going to be exposed, when the hidden things of darkness in the lives of Christians are going to be brought out to the light, to be seen and exposed and judged by God. This ought to strike fear in our hearts. Romans 14.10 But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. That's written to believers. And so that brings me, number three, to consider how do Christians cultivate a godly fear? Obviously, we must. Obviously, we should. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Conduct yourselves. That's the only command in this verse, by the way. That's the command. In the light of these truths, conduct yourselves in a certain way. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Conduct yourselves in fear in the light of these truths that we have just talked about. So how do Christians cultivate a godly fear? Well, number one, by living as aliens, not residents upon the earth. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Throughout the time of your exile here is the way the English Standard Version puts it. Or live your lives as strangers here is the way the NIV put it. The word that's actually in the Greek and is not very very plain to us in in the uh, New King James that I have before me is a word that means alongside the house, outsider, one who is outside the family. In other words, when you are in the family of God, you are outside the family of unbelieving men. You can't be at home in both families. If God is your father, then heaven is your home, and God's people are your family, and the world, that is the world that is at enmity with God, is not your home And these people are not your family, so 
conduct yourselves accordingly. Live as aliens, not as residents upon the earth. As aliens, as temporary residents in a foreign land. The word here is used only in Peter and in Acts 13.17. And there it is used of Israel sojourning in Egypt. When Israel was in Egypt, they were strangers in a foreign land. Even though they were there for several hundred years, they were still always strangers in a foreign land. They didn't belong. They knew that was not their home. They knew God had promised to take them to another place. They could not really settle down and live like the Egyptians because they were aliens. They were strangers simply passing through, sojourning in a foreign land. And that's the idea here. That's the way we are to live. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here, your stay, your exile here, in fear. For the fact of the matter is, if we have been born again by the Spirit of God, we do not belong to this world. And therefore, its rewards and punishments are not ultimately important. And so many times the reason that we are not living in the fear of God as we should is because we are living too much in the fear of men. We are too concerned about the opinions of others. We don't want to be poorly thought of by our friends and neighbors. We don't want the people around us to think we're odd or different. We'd like to have the, the benefits that being called a Christian might have, whatever they may be, in a, in a community that might ascribe some benefits to that. But we certainly don't want any of the liabilities... We don't want to be thought odd or strange, and so we are often more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. In other words, we fear men more than we fear God. That's the wrong attitude. Jesus said in Matthew 10:28, "And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell." We need to develop less fear of men and more fear of God because this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And so how do Christians cultivate a godly fear? Number one, by living as aliens, not residents upon the earth. And we need to remind ourselves of that regularly, don't we? God has blessed the United States of America, and we get pretty comfortable here. I know I do. And I think all of God's people do. So many of God's children down through the centuries have been in places of persecution, places of difficulty, and millions of God's children are in places like that around the world today. But here in America, things are pretty good, pretty comfortable. We sort of settle down and we enjoy what, what God has blessed us with here. And there is a proper way to enjoy it and the proper sense of enjoyment and gratitude to God. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't settle down and live as if this is our home, as if we are residents here. We must always live as strangers, as aliens, as exiles, if you please, as illegal immigrants. We don't belong here. This world is not my home. How do Christians cultivate a godly fear? Number two, by living each day in the light of the day of judgment. Not only by living as aliens or residents upon the earth, but by keeping in mind the truth of the day of judgment, which Peter has put before us here. 
We need to tell ourselves every day, I will face the judgment of God someday. And we need to consider everything that we do in the light of that. Will I want to have this exposed in that day? Do I want God to shine the the light of His truth upon this act, upon this deed, upon this relationship, upon this matter in my life? Do I want that to be judged by God? Do I want that to be exposed by God in that day when the hidden things of darkness are brought to the light? And if we would truly live every day with the judgment day of God in mind, the judgment seat of Christ in mind, what a difference that would make in our actions. Again, so often we are more concerned about what others know, and we sometimes think that if no one else is around and they don't know what I'm doing, or if the people I'm doing it with are the kind of people who would approve of what I'm doing, and, and the people that, that uh, don't approve aren't around, then I'm not concerned about it. I don't worry about that. Have you forgotten? God is always present. God sees everything. God is always here. You cannot hide from God. And the judgment day is coming. And that thing that you are doing will be exposed for all the universe, I take it, to see and know about whether you are a Christian or not. That's a fearful thing. That ought to shape our lives, our actions, our decisions. So number one, by living as aliens, not residents upon the earth. And number two, by living each day in the light of the day of judgment. And number three, by cultivating and maintaining a reverential attitude toward God. By cultivating and maintaining a reverential attitude toward God. Conduct yourselves in fear. More literally, in fear, conduct yourselves. Again, the word fear comes before Conduct to receive greater emphasis. In fear, conduct yourselves. Peter hasn't slipped up here. This is not a mistake. He's not not saying something that he ought not to say when he is talking to Christians and tells them, tells us, in fear, we ought to conduct ourselves. And this is the word fabas. It's the same word for fear, the most common word for fear in the New Testament. There's no difference in the word that is used between the fear of a Christian and the fear of the unbeliever toward God. In fear, conduct yourselves. Indeed, do not the scriptures teach the same thing throughout? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Proverbs 9, 10. Remember in Acts chapter 5 when God severely disciplined Ananias and Sapphira? We read in verse 5, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Verse 11, after Sapphira received the same judgment, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. There's no suggestion that that wasn't appropriate. In fact, the suggestion is that's exactly what God intended. That's why he did it the way he did it. So that fear would come upon the church as well as upon the unbelieving community beyond the church. The same fear of God upon both the church and those outside the church. That's appropriate. That's healthy. That's sanctifying. That indicates spiritual growth and maturity when you develop a reverential fear for God. 
And we read in Acts 9.31, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, or Galilee rather, and Samaria, had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. It's not all fear and trembling. There are some wonderful things to, to make our fear different from the fear that an unbeliever ought to have and will have someday when he stands without the righteousness of Christ before the judgment bar of God. But yes, Christians are to learn to walk in godly fear. That's good. Not bad. Second Corinthians seven, eleven through fifteen. After Paul had severely scolded the Corinthian church, and now they have repented, he says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear. That's a good thing. That's a good result. What fear? What vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication? In all things you have proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care of you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth... Even so, our boasting to Titus was found true, and his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. How with fear and trembling you received him. Why? Because he was an emissary of Paul. And the fear of God, represented by the rebuke of Paul, had taken hold of their hearts. And they stood in fear and trembling of Titus, the messenger of Paul, who came to their church. Is that an unhealthy thing? No, that's a healthy thing. First Timothy 5.20 Speaking about elders who sin. And Paul says, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. We ought to have a healthy fear of sin. We ought to have a healthy fear of the exposure of our sins. We ought to be concerned enough about the exposure of our sins that we stop sinning. And so by cultivating and maintaining a reverential attitude toward God... We have the proper godly fear that Peter speaks about. Hebert said, Not the craven fear of a slave, but the reverential awe of a son toward a beloved and esteemed father, an awe that shrinks from whatever would displease and grieve him. That's the kind of fear we need. Enough fear of God, enough reverential fear of God that we shrink from displeasing him. If we don't have that much fear of God, if we sin carelessly, lightly, if we think it's no big deal, if we just rip off the verses, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it's no big deal. 
I'll confess it and sin some more. I'll confess it and sin some more. Whoopee, I'm a child of God. It's no big deal. If that's our attitude, we've missed something. To Christians, it was written, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so I conclude by saying this. The judgment seat of Christ should be an awesome reality for the believer. Facing God as judge will not be trivial simply because God is also our Father. It's a very solemn and serious matter. Therefore, we need to meditate upon the truth of God as judge, the judge of all men, including Christians, and let that solemn truth develop within us a healthy and reverential fear of God. We need to let the solemnity of the future day of judgment keep us from sin and drive us quickly to the throne of grace whenever we do sin. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. May God help us to do so, shall we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the all-prevailing name of Jesus Christ. We have nothing of our own to plead. We have no works of our own, no worthiness, no promises that we can make to you. We acknowledge, O Lord, that we often stray. Yes, O Lord, we often knowingly sin against your will. We often abuse your goodness. We often abuse our position as children of our Heavenly Father. And much of our guilt, O Lord, arises from the position we have as sons of God, the low value we put upon that position, the low value we put upon the privilege of your word and prayer to keep our hearts holy before you. O Lord, we confess our sin and failure to use the means of grace to proper advantage, to come to the house of God with the right attitude, to hear your word reverently, receptively, believingly, obediently. O Lord, forgive us for the times we've come with a critical attitude. And Lord, help us to be moved by your favor, not unaware of your glory and power, even as we thank you for your grace and love and our position as your sons. Impress on us deeply, O Lord, a sense of your omnipresence and of your holiness and of the awful wrath that you have toward sin and all that is unholy. Remind us, O Lord, that you are with us every moment of every day, every step that we take, every word that we speak, every thought that we entertain. Lord, may we lay all of these things before the throne of grace and view them all in the light of that future day of judgment that we might live our lives here in exile, in holy fear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.